Let each of us listen with joy and expectation to a portion of God's holy and eternal word as found in Romans chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Concerning Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including yourselves, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May we find joy in that peace and in the challenges he places before us. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We are journeying together through the book of Romans, and we have looked at Paul, the preacher of the good news, And the gospel as the promise of the good news and Jesus Christ, the Son, the person proclaimed at the center of everything in the good news. Today, we want to ask what happens when we love this Son? What difference does it make? What change happens when we receive the good news? What does it mean to be a Christian at least as that important question is answered in these verses. Really only verse 5 and tad of verse 6 of the first chapter of Romans. Verse 5 tells us that if you love him, if you connect your life to him, he will give you and you will receive two things. Grace and apostleship. And I believe the order of significance, first grace and then apostleship, first conversion and then vocation, first to be called and then to be sent. So let's look first at grace. Grace, unlimited, unearned blessing. The good news is that salvation is by grace, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should what? Boast. Grace is the kind goodwill, the loving relationship of the Creator God. Grace is the mercy and loving kindness of God that He grants to all as a gift to those who respond to Him. A baby breathes. And breathes in life when it is slapped. The sovereign God, if we breathe spiritually, we breathe because the sovereign God breathes life into us. If we are alive, it is because of his grace. We are born from a God, so there's no place for self-congratulation. There's no place for human achievement. We are not saved by our own works. In fact, This theme will be developed again and again in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 3, verse 24, it says, 
we are justified freely by his grace. Verse 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law or works? No, but by the law of faith. We believe, and God is gracious. In Romans chapter 5, he'll develop that more. In verse 20 and 21, he talks about where sin abounded. Grace did much more abound. Mercy without cause, kindness without deserving. We believe God is gracious. So all of this means that salvation doesn't come by baptism. Salvation doesn't come by gathering around the Lord's table or church membership. Salvation doesn't come by trying to keep the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule. Salvation doesn't come by our giving to charity. It doesn't come simply by being moral or respectable. It does not come even by claiming to be a Christian. It comes when we receive the the gift of grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says we receive grace. That's the first provision of the gospel. We don't earn it. We couldn't if we wanted to. It's impossible. For by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. Grace is the Magna Carta of the Christian church. Grace is one of the two most beautiful words in the English language and one of the most precious words in the Christian vocabulary. It denotes God's active, unmerited favor in Jesus Christ. That God has come to us where we are and as we are. God has lived our life. God has taken the burden of our mistakes and rebellion upon his shoulders. God has promised through faith and by his grace to heal us of everything that we are sin and sick and dying of. God, by the resurrection power of his Son, has burst through even the barrier of death to give us spiritual life. It was the pastor, I believe, of 10th Presbyterian Church who first said, Love looking up, that's worship. And love reaching out, that's friendship. But love looking down, ah, that's grace. To people who have experienced it, God's grace is the greatest reality in life. David Siemens is a Methodist pastor who uh, became famous as a counselor, some of his counseling through his sermons. But he writes, many years ago, I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems are these. The failure to receive grace and the failure to give grace to other people. The Fisher King is a film made by Terry Gilliam, written and directed, the only member of Monty Python who wasn't born in England, who was, in fact, worse than that, an American. Amanda Plummer was one of the characters in that film, and she was, uh, her character was kind of a klutzy, clunky wallflower. She had no friends, and Robin Williams' character takes her out on a date at the end of the evening. He says, I want to talk to you. I want to get to know you. I want to see you again. And Amanda Plummer's character says, Nuh-uh. Nuh-uh. If you got to know me, you won't like me. I'm tired of rejection. It was nice to go out, but everybody who gets to know me doesn't like me, so thanks. And then Robin Williams' character says, I do know you, and I know you think you're awkward and clumsy, and you are kind of clumsy. 
But I want you to know that I know you who you are and I love you. And I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's grace. And John Newton had it right when he named his hymn Amazing Grace. When we feel grace and see it, it is always amazing. That's why Amanda Plummer's character's next lines were spot on. She looked at Robin Williams' character and said, Are you for real? The gospel is the promise that in Jesus Christ, God's gracious promises are for real and available to all those who will reach out and touch him savingly. That's why Christianity is not a religion, fundamentally. It is a relationship. Religion is a whole realm where people try hard, sometimes even try their best to be good. And by doing that, enter a kind of contract in which we think we can put God in our debt. Christianity is the glad recognition that we always stand in the debt of God. A religious person tries to save himself or herself through good works. And if we try hard enough, God will be in our debt. A Christian is one who understands themselves always to be in God's debt. There's a spirit of wonder which always permeates the life of a Christian. Grace is the magna carta of the Christian life. That's why it's always amazing. Gordon MacDonald writes, You need not be a Christian to build houses, feed the hungry, or heal the sick. There's only one thing. There is only one thing the world cannot do that the church must. And that is offer grace. The second consequence of the call is apostleship. I think Paul is expanding his thinking here. In verse 1, he starts out with Paul. He identifies himself. We saw that there were implications in that identity for us. But by verse 5, he is speaking about we. We receive this grace, and although there is a technical sense of apostleship, and Paul is an apostle in a sense that we never will be, he is unique. I think he is also here spreading and expanding the notion of apostleship. It happens elsewhere in the New Testament to include all of us who name Christ as Lord and Savior. An apostle, you remember from several sermons ago, is a messenger, is a sent one. So the application here to our lives is all of us to whom grace is sent, all to whom it is received, also have the grace of being sent, of carrying it out. Grace and apostleship. The gospel not only brings us grace, it also brings us the task of being sent. To be an apostle means to be sent, to be a sent one. Now, I'm a little bit out of limb on this, but so let me get some support. Commentator William Hendrickson agrees with this. He says, anyone who is on a spiritual mission, anyone who in that capacity represents the sender, anyone who brings the message of salvation, is, in a sense, an apostle. We are going to start the fall a little bit early, but next week, 
with a month-long emphasis on mission, specifically in the mission to which we are called as a church fellowship and body here. Next Sunday from this pulpit, Golden Gate's uh, director of missions and our fellow member Don Dent will start that special emphasis. Two weeks later on Sunday night, we'll have a review of one of our mission involvements this past summer, uh, our ministry to the mission camp, migrant camp at uh, Davis. And then two weeks after that, or four weeks from next Sunday and Sunday night, we will be gathering as a church fellowship to consider what God is calling us to in the future, the immediate future, and perhaps even the more uh, long-distant future as a church together. The good news of the gospel is that God provides us with conversion and with vocation, the high and holy privilege of carrying the gospel and of serving Jesus Christ. It's not just being redeemed. It is to be redeemed and then sent. He graciously puts us on his team. Thinking of this point, I remembered in my files I had a sketch which I had never used. I pulled it out and blew the dust off of it. And let me share it with you. It's a setting of a ball game and an announcer's voice comes over. After that, you're going to hear a player on the bench and a coach. But the announcer says about the game, this one will come right down to the wire, sports fans. There are 30 seconds left on the clock, and the game is tied. The Tigers are in trouble. They have only five players eligible and only four in the court. The Tigers coach is calling timeout. So the coach goes over to the bench, and he says, What's wrong, Smith? Oh, nothing. I'm just watching the game. Well, Johnson fouled out. Yeah. <laughs> That's too bad. What are you going to do? What am I going to do? Yeah. What do you think I'm going to do? All our players except five have fouled out of the game, and you're one of those five. Get out there. <laughs> but, but coach, when I joined the team, I really wasn't expecting to play. What? Well, I just wanted to be part of the team. You know, sit on the bench, wave the towel, listen to you during timeouts, rake the other guys over the coal. I don't believe this. This is the most important game of the year. Well, I know. Well, then get up there. But coach, we might lose if I go out there. Basketball isn't my physical gift. Now, waving the towel, sitting on the bench, listening to you call plays, those are my spiritual gifts. Well, I don't care what you say. Get up there. Well, some coach you are telling me what I should do. I might just have to visit some other teams. I can't believe it. I came here to all the practices. I show up for all the games. I keep track of the scores. I never get in anybody's way. And you have the gall to blame me just because I don't want to play the game. You're worse than my pastor. <laughs> if we get on the team, we're going to be called to play. And that's grace. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 that if we have been created in Jesus Christ unto good works, which God has ordained that we should walk in them. Several years ago, we went through the book of Ephesians, and I wonder if we remember that point. To do good works. We are created for that. That's part of the end of God's purpose 
to delight him and to reflect back his glory. Listen to the rest of verses 5 and 6. We proclaim obedience to the faith among all the nations. Obedience to the faith. That circle that. That's an important phrase. We might get back to that in uh, three weeks when I'm in the pulpit again. But right now I want to move on beyond that to all the nations among whom you also are the call to Jesus Christ. In other words, when we have been called to Jesus Christ, we are not just called, we are called to others. And there is confidence here that God has his people prepared in every tongue and tribe and nation among people and climes and regions which are geographically and culturally and linguistically different from us and which may seem to us to be far away. God has prepared among those people and all nations people to sing his praises. People that seem far away from us are near to him. Also, we may feel distant from people who are geographically near. But for social or cultural or reasons of fame, seem far away. The text is clear that we have a ministry to them. Many of us, I know, have been thinking a lot this week about Robin Williams and his passing just three miles, 3.44 miles exactly from where we are worshiping now. I considered not mentioning his passing at all. I've written a letter on your behalf to his widow and his children, expressing our condolences and offering the resources of our church if we could be of any help in any way. And we pray the best for all his family, appreciate all he did for this community, and particularly in light of the word from God we have heard this morning that has told us to receive the gospel is to be charged with carrying the gospel. We also wish we could have done more for him. We do not know what demons, those are his words, not mine, haunted him or reveled in his pain. And I've been around long enough to observe enough depression to know how much of it is medical and chemical. I have seen depression as an illness that attacks and afflicts even the most fierce and faithful followers of Christ. His death has had an extraordinary impact on our community. There have been other international stars who have lived in our church field, who have come to early ends, but there has been something about the passing of Robin Williams that has been particularly disturbing. And I wondered why. Two small figurines flank the front steps of Williams Tiburon's home. I thought they might be Hindu gods or gargoyles, but upon closer inspection, they actually are statuesque gestures, seemingly ready to comment on the passing scene with appropriate sarcasm or innuendo or wit. Although Robin Williams became a dramatic actor, he was known best as a comedian. He didn't entertain us by singing the blues or embodying the rebellious, revolutionary world of rock. He made us laugh. He was a comic commentator on life. 
And therein, I think, is the source of what has been particularly disturbing and disorienting to us about his death. Comedy exposes, uh, exposes foibles and celebrates failures. But what makes comedy work? What allows it to be funny is the unspoken confidence that beneath it all, the world is all right. It can show inconsistencies and reveal hypocrisies because it conveys an unspoken assurance that doing so will allow the world to be a wiser, safer place. Comedy is funny only if we think at day's end the world is redeemable. I've long been impressed, remarked, that Shakespeare's dark, oppressive tragedy Othello and his warm, encouraging romance, The Widder's Tale, are built almost on the identical plot. They both tell the same story of a great leader who foolishly allows an unfounded jealousy to grow until he kills an innocent wife. The difference is that in Widder's Tale, the king is given... A second chance. A chance of redemption, of restoration, of resurrection, if you will. And all the evil is undone. I think what has haunted us about Robin Williams' death, besides our sorrow for him and his family personally, is this unnerving clash. A clash between the laughter and humor he gave us in life and what the end of his life seemed to want to tell us that life, after all, isn't coming. That there is a very real possibility of getting to a place from which there is no hope, where there's no foundation on top of which laughter can legitimately arise. We're afraid that a fellow and not winner's tale may have the last word. There is a reason why classic comedies end in marriages. It is a sign that things turn out all right and that the world has a future. There is a reason why Scripture ends with the marriage feast of the Lamb. For Christians, whatever befalls us in this life, life is not a tragedy because it ultimately has a happy ending. The great literary critic Northern Fry put it this way. From the point of view of Christianity, tragedy is an episode in that larger scheme of redemption and resurrection to which Dante gave the name of Commedia, the divine comedy. The sense of tragedy as a prelude to comedy is not separable from anything explicitly Christian. Because of the gospel, Christians can take setbacks no matter what they are in light of the coming redemptive comedy. In a 2010 interview, Williams shared directly why he had contemplated suicide. He said, and I quote, it's trying to fill a hole, and the hole is fear. After his heart surgery in 2009, he told a friend, it left me feeling mortal for the first time in my life, and I don't like how that felt. 
twice in her short and eloquent statement, Williams's wife referred to her prayer, her hope that people could be helped by this not to be afraid, twice. Now, I want to say there is great wisdom in fear. There is in life that which is fearful. In the light of the glory of the angels, the shepherds were sore afraid. The light of the glory of God reminds us we're not God, we're creatures. Our fundamental sin, the sin of Adam and Eve, was to turn away from our relationship with God and to attempt to be in charge of our own lives in our own way. And the attempt to be in charge of our lives ourselves, to pull them together on our own, always leads eventually to failure. The light of God shines on our lives and reveals our best efforts to be lies and delusions. Eventually, God's grace can make us scared enough to see our own inadequacies. That's the reason John Newton penned the line in his hymn, Amazing Grace, was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. The first thing that grace does is make us scared. Unless you see your creatureliness, unless you see your inadequacy, unless you see that you're a sinner, unless you see that it's a lie that you've been living under for years, that you're not really in charge, that you can't really pull things together, unless you see that, you will never have your fears relieved. We saw at the start of this letter that Paul was great, not because of who he was or what he had done, but to what he attached his life, how he identified himself. He identified himself fundamentally as one who is related to God through Jesus Christ. And so he was able to say, in whatever state I find myself, therein I have learned to be comforted, to be confident. And I think it's an intended irony of grace that perhaps his greatest work as a missionary to the Gentiles happened not when he was free, but when he was in prison. The good news of the gospel is that we are sent grace, and by his grace, we are called to send it to others. Living and holy God, we thank you that you have not left us alone, but you have called us to yourself and made a relationship with you possible by the death and resurrection and reign of Jesus Christ. For that, eternity itself will not be time enough to sing your praise. And we thank you for the great grace, not only of a conversion, not only of a salvation, but of a vocation. May we be faithful. May we be obedient in our faith to carry and share and say and send and live your grace to others. For it is in Jesus' name.